open to Ephesians chapter 1, or you can read along on the screen or on your phone or whatever uh, helps you the most. And so this morning we're excited to kick off a new series through the book of Ephesians. And so we'll explain a little bit more in the, in the sermon what that word means. It's not just a crazy Bible word as a place, Ephesus, but we'll talk about that. But one of the reasons that we're going to dive into the book of Ephesians for these next few months is because the book of Ephesians... Uh, really is considered by many to be just one of the greatest summaries of the good news of Jesus that you could find. The good news that tells us who we are. So if, if, our, if our world and all of us in this room and everyone around us is wrestling with something, a lot of times it's like, who am I? Why do I exist? But also the question of where we are and why God has placed us in this world and how he has placed us in this world as followers of Jesus together. So it's really going to emphasize the importance of the gospel of God's grace, but it's also going to emphasize the importance of the local church. And what we mean by local church is uh, not just believers floating around out here, separated together in the world. That's what we call the universal church, just Christians of all times, places, and cultures. In a way, we are God's people together, the universal church. The book of Ephesians really connects that universal church that we're a part of, of all times, cultures, and places, into a local area where we commit to, to be the church together as his people. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges for us to understand the bigness of God's grace. The book of Ephesians is going to want to blow our minds when it comes to God's grace. But it also doesn't want to just leave us with a big sort of heady theology or view of God, it wants us to take that and then to see that incorporated into our everyday lives so that we experience a deeper and more intimate relationship with God and so that other people can see what it looks like when God is not merely considered to be true news, but good news. So we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's just amazing to think that when Satan tempts us to despair, that we can look and see our Savior who has satisfied all of our sin and who has secured us in all of our suffering with a truth that no lies of the enemy, no lies coming from our own hearts or from other people can reign over. And God, if anything, God, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, today that through this time of looking into your word, that you give us more good news truth so that we can believe and live in light of that reality against all the lies that we're going to hear this week. And may we be able to take that truth not only into our own hearts and our own homes, but into every people and place in our everyday lives and in this city. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember as a child going to a Braves game once and us getting deep into the city of Atlanta into a, a place that we had never been and certainly didn't look like the small town that we came from and was filled with a lot of people that didn't look like the people in the small town and place that I came from. And I remember something happening. Even I can still remember it to this day. I can remember all of a sudden hearing the, the doors lock in the car. 
So everybody just immediately sort of reacting, not in a malicious way, probably not even in a, in a, in a thoughtful, intentional way, but like, all right, lock them up. And I remember this, this happening not just in the car, but even as a child being aware that this was happening in the sight of the people who were standing all around us. We were very afraid, very nervous, and just sort of this instinctual, self-protective act to be like, I don't care who's around me. I don't care what they think. I don't care how this might affect them. We're going to protect ourselves. We're going to be safe. And as if the, the words going through the minds, at least of some of us, is, I am not here. I am not here. I refuse to be here. I'm in my car, but I'm not in this place. The only space I'm going to intentionally inhabit right now is right here in this car, getting to my next destination. And I'm just going to block out everything that's going on around me for the sake of my safety and for the sake of my ultimate goal. This was a story that came to my mind this week as I thought about the beginning of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, and really the larger story of God. Is this is exactly how we can be as Christians in the world. This is exactly how churches can be. Jesus, you've saved us. You've, you've given us this ultimate goal of getting to heaven. And until then, it's going to be me right here doing my thing until I get to that goal because everything around me is intimidating. Things around me seem scary. Things around me seem out of control. So I'm here. I'm here. I'm in the church. I'm in the church. Church, my car. Right? I'm in the church, but I'm not in the city. I'm in the church. But I'm not in this world. And we've seen this in the history of the church. And honestly, if we're all going to be real, we've, we feel this in our own hearts at times. As just everything, everything around us is just so overwhelming. It's like we just want to say, I'm just going to pay attention to me, what's going on in my little area that I can control, and then I can have some kind of ability to manage. What we're up against in the book of Ephesians and in our own hearts is what we might call a self-righteous separatism by works. That is, we're going to do what we have to do to guard and protect our place and our position versus what the gospel story calls us to. The drama of the kingdom is that a sanctified sending by grace. That we are to be intentional Intentional engagers of where we're at all around us versus just viewing where we're at as incidental to the life that we're living. Because as we stand back from people, as we lock the doors, as it were, around us, and this isn't just in terms of places that we maybe feel a little frightened. This is, this is also in our homes, in the stories of the people around us. This is in our workplaces. As we go to work, is it just incidental to you that I'm here here to get a paycheck, just here to, to get home and get to the weekend. When we inhabit these places sort of unintentionally and more just incidentally, I just happen to be here, then what we're actually proclaiming through our lives is a false gospel. A false gospel that leads the broken people that are all around us in all of these spheres to hear, you know, I really must be untouchable. I really must be the type of person that just needs to be protected that others just need to be protected from. So I got a couple options. I can either hide who I really am to these Christian people, or I can just double down. I mean, that's what shame does to us anyway. Shame says, I'm already so messed up. 
these Christians are validating that, so I might as well just really live into that. Just own that role. The message to burnout people around us here is, well, I better keep up appearances. I'm only worth getting close to due to how good I, hard I try and how many activities I participate in. It's all about what I do. And so they just keep doing so that they might be welcomed and accepted. Their hearts are drying up. The message we say to the board when we live in this dislocated sort of way is, well, I guess most of life is off limits. These so-called disciples of Jesus seem only to care about organizing and energizing for activities that take place within their church schedule. So I guess, really, following Jesus has little to do with where I spend 40 to 50 hours a week, my workplace, or even the majority of my time at home, whether it's around a television or a computer screen, or a ball field, or a hobby. It's no wonder that so many people in our city, even those who would claim to be Christians and those who are non-Christians, have little interest in becoming a part of the people of God. Because it seems like church and Christians are just driving around living in some sort of general reality that has no specificity to where you're really at. This is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not the gospel of a God who is hiding out in heaven somewhere. It's not the gospel of a God who has said, wow, that's really, that's really chaotic. That's, that's really dark. Or that's really complicated there on earth due to all the fallen realities. I'm just going to keep my distance. Right here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're just going to do our thing and enjoy ourselves. And if anybody wants to come over here and get in on that, they're certainly welcome to. We'll, we'll provide with some activities and we'll provide with some programs. And yeah, everybody's welcome, but we're going to stay right here and keep the doors locked until somebody comes up and knocks that we feel like has did what they need to do to get themselves ready to be a part of. Aren't we so thankful that that is not how God has came to us? Has told us to get it together and then you can come in. But it's the God, the story of God who has came near to us in uncompromising holiness and yet unfathomable grace. And he calls his people, and we're going to see this morning, see all in Ephesians, is he calls his people to not forget who they are in him but also to not forget where they are as the sent people of God. You could think of the first three chapters in Ephesians as a call, a deep call to identity formation. Who am I? Who are we as God's people? But then it's also a call to everyday, real-life location. Chapters 4 through 6. What does it look like to do this together as a church sent to the world? What does it look like to live in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our everyday lives. We're zeroing in this morning on this, this call. It will touch in all of this book on this call to be the church, both in Christ and in our city. We're called to be the, be the church in Christ, but also in our city. So the first way we do this is we've got to live into this dual identity. We see this in verse 1. So how does verse 1 and 2 invite us into this? First of all, 
by showing us this author's embrace of dual identity. So you see here, Paul is writing this book. I assume many of you know who Paul is, but for those who don't, Paul was not always a follower of Jesus. Paul at one point went by the name of Saul, and he hated Jesus. He thought Jesus was the biggest fake, the biggest imposter, the biggest overhyped waste of time that you could imagine. Like many people in this city, maybe at us and sometimes in our lives and even in our hearts today, Jesus is overrated and he's actually destructive. He's a lie. And so the thing that Saul, Paul, set out his life to do was to destroy the church, was to destroy any person, any place, any institution that would seek to share Jesus with other people and gather together in his name. This is who's writing this. But a, a dramatic change obviously took place in Paul's life because now he, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. As he went from being one who was sent to stamp out the name of Jesus to now one who is being sent to spread the fame of the name of Jesus. An apostle, a sent one of or from Jesus Christ because Paul met Jesus in a deep and transforming way. He met Jesus as more than just a ticket to heaven. He met Jesus as more than just a mascot for southern religiosity. He met Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords that all of creation was created for, created from, and was about. So this is, this is how he leads this letter and so many others. If you want to know who I am, I'm one who's been changed and sent by Jesus. He does this by the will of God. This is no accident. This was no change in his life that he willed and made happen. This was a change that God had willed and made happen in him. And we're going to look at this more in coming weeks, especially next week, about this good news that God can change anyone. And he can change Paul. He can change whoever you're thinking. Who's the Paul in this neighborhood? Who's the Paul in my workplace? Who's the one who rolls their eyes when people mention the name of Jesus? God loves to show his power and grace in changing those sent to mock Jesus into those sent to represent him. But we also see Paul's not just living the disidentity of who he is in Christ, of Christ, and by the will of God, but also we can see in his name that he's embraced this identity of where he is located and who he is sent to. So we've already mentioned that Paul's name that he went by and was known by before he knew Jesus was Paul. Now there's some confusion over why Paul's name changed from Saul to Paul. We think in the Bible oftentimes where God changes people's names. Like Abram was changed to Abraham. It went from meaning father to father of nations. Now Paul's name changed, although it is deeply connected to what God's done in his life, it was not, it was not because God, we don't have any evidence that God said, hey, your name was Saul, now your name is going to be Paul. No, the reason Paul is going by this name now is because we, we see in the Bible that Paul was born an Israelite. And his Israelite name was Saul. But he was also born as a Roman citizen. And so the name he went by as a Roman was Paul. So what Paul has did now is he said, I want to identify with the people that God has sent me to reach. In other places, Paul says that although Peter is sent to focus on the Jews, 
Paul is now sent to focus on the Gentiles. And so Paul says, based on whom I'm sent to, based on this location and the specificity of who God has called me to reach, I'm going to go by the name that they can relate with the best. He's embracing this dual identity that he speaks of elsewhere where he says, I'm willing to become all things to all people that by any means I might win some to Christ. So we see Paul, he's leaning into this dual identity that he has. But also we see the dual identity of the audience that he writes to. Again, first of all, who they are in Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now this is another mind-blowing reality of the Bible. It's that when the Bible uses this term saints in the New Testament, it's not talking about this elite group of people who have performed a miracle or who have shown some degree of longevity of faithfulness in their life. No, that's, that's a distortion of man-made religious categories. But in the Bible, to be a saint is just to be someone who had faith in Christ Jesus. It was to be someone who had been genuinely born again of the Spirit. The word saints means one who is sanctified, holy ones. Those who are set apart for God. It comes from the word in the Old Testament where it's talking about the, the, the instruments and utensils that were used in the temple. They were to be set apart for the use of God. To be exclusively owned by Him operated by him and used for his glory and to bring other people into communion and relationship with him. And what is amazing is that if you this morning are in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. So if you've ever said as a Christian, well, I'm no saint, right? You know that phrase? Well, I'm no saint. Then you lied. You are a saint. And again, we're here at the gospel of grace again, aren't we? Well, you must not know me if you, know, if you think I'm a saint. I can say, well, I may not know you, but I know Jesus. And what the gospel says is that you are in Christ Jesus. You have faith in Christ Jesus. That you've been changed by Christ Jesus. That your identity is not formed by what you do. Your identity has been formed by who you are in Christ Jesus. This is transforming, earth-shattering good news. Because we are the first fruits of this great kingdom restoration that God is doing in this world. Because in the very beginning, all of creation was to be set apart for God's glory. And God is in the business of redeeming everything in this world to be set apart as His. And now as His people and His church, we are the first fruits of that work because the good news is that one day everything in creation, every tree, every animal, every piece of technology will be as those things that were in the temple for God, from God, and to God. And that is who we already are now in Christ. But we're also in a place. So to the saints who are in Ephesus, now, we may have some smart, super smarty pants people in here who will go study this. So, uh, side note. Some of the earliest manuscripts actually do not 
manuscripts of the Bible. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew. And one of the reasons that we know that the New Testament is so reliable is because we have so many copies of it. And so it's not like we just have one. They're like thinking, well, Bubba was bored one day and sat over here and wrote a story. No, we've got like all these copies of it. And we can compare them to one another and say, well, a hundred of them say this and only one of them says this. The one that are a hundred must be true. Well, in some of these earliest ones, it doesn't say in Ephesus. Well, the reason this is important is because many believe it's kind of like there's just like this blank there. And so many people think that this letter was not maybe just written to one particular local church, Ephesus, in this particular area, but in that broader area that Ephesus is situated in, in Asia Minor, so that it could be circulated from church to church to church, so that they could take these universal truths and apply them in a specific way. So I'm not bringing that up this morning to, to add confusion to you or to be unimportant. It's almost just another way to drive home this point of the fact that God's word has been delivered to his people as in such a way that not just one people in one time and in one place would say this is meaningful to us, but so that all of God's people in any time and in any place can say this is for us now in this city, in this location, and so that it matters then that we know about where we live. Ephesus. Does anybody know anything about the ancient city of Ephesus? Feel free to share out loud. Lots of idols. He mentioned Artemis. So if you've ever looked into Greek mythology, Ephesus was the location of the great temple to Diana or Artemis. So there's lots of, lots of idolatry here. Anybody know anything else? It's okay if you don't. Asia Minor, yes, good. So we're thinking this area, if, uh, if you have any geography, and I don't, by the way, I'm horrible at this, but Turkey, think Turkey area. And there is a place, named, country named Turkey. Immature person thinks that's funny. All right, Turkey. All right, here's some other things. It was a port city. So a port city, think, if, again, my level of maturity, Think pirate city, right? Think sailors, think debauchery, think hedonism, think immorality, think what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus because we're just in and out here. So great temple to Artemis, Diana, that involved all types of cult prostitution and other things. Port city, which makes it even easier to anonymously engage in activities like that. It was also an, a great economic center. It was like a, this trade route. They all come together in Ephesus. And so it was said at one point to be the greatest emporium, which was a com commerce of, of wealth. But there was a great class divide here. Demographically, then, you have racial issues, class issues. And it was also a big entertainment center where you had a lot of theater that was done in conjunction with all of those other things that was calling people into this drama of a narrative of living just for the moment versus finding themselves in a larger story of God. And I think all of us can say, well, that sounds relatable. But the church was to never forget who they were, but also to know where they were. So one of my many weaknesses is building stuff 
So you think like, hey, you go to Lowe's or Walmart, and I'm going to get this. Have you ever had to put together this furniture? It was like, oh, this is supposed to be so easy, right? The little dolls, the little things. And for me, it's not usually easy. And because I'm not, I guess, super manly man, at least in this way, is like, hey, if I don't have a hammer, well, I can use this screwdriver as a hammer. Maybe you did that. Maybe you haven't. And so one time I remember whether it was working on a, a bed or a piece of furniture, just saying, I'm just going to use a screwdriver. Might have been laziness too. I don't want to walk 30 feet to wherever the hammer is to have to try to find it. But I just remember what a debacle it was. I remember breaking the handle on the screwdriver because that's what I was using as the hammer side. Seemed to make sense at the time. I remember hurting my hands because it's hard if you've never tried to use a screwdriver as a hammer. I don't recommend it. It's, it's a little harder to navigate. It's just not been made for that purpose. But I also remember damaging the object that I was working on because with the misses and, and you know, you're not, it's, it's not a flat surface, at least this screwdriver handle I was using. And so it's like, you know, I'm, hurt, I'm breaking the screwdriver, I'm hurting my hands, and I'm actually hurting what I'm working on. Just a very frustrating, frustrating experience. Frustrating, painful, and poor workmanship. There's nothing wrong with the screwdriver. Screwdrivers are great. But when we don't know what we're using in connection with actually where we're using it, then it can be very painful, very frustrating, and we can end up just saying, I think I might have just made a bigger mess than if I would have just taken the time to understand what I'm working with and what I'm using it with. This is why it's so important for us as Christians to know who we are and where we're at. Because maybe for many of us when it comes to living as followers of Jesus in our everyday lives and living that in specific cities, we, see, we take this general approach like, well, just anything, as long as I... As long as I'm thinking about it a little bit, well, anything counts. And there's obviously grace for that, but it's why I think we become so frustrated in our Christian lives. It's why maybe sometimes we end up hurting ourselves, or maybe even hurting others that we're wanting to bring the good news of Jesus to. It's because we are not taking seriously, embracing the identity of who we are and where we are. So we want to think about this a little out loud today, but first, the first thing is, We've got to own the fact that we're saints. It is not pride for you to, in your heart, own the fact, I have been set apart by God and for God. It's actually pride to refuse to believe that, embrace that in your heart, because you're saying, what I feel trumps what God tells me is real. I mean, how might it change the way you go to work if you woke up tomorrow morning and you said, you just said these words of God to yourself, I am a saint. I have been sent by God and set apart by God to go to my workplace and represent Him in the way that I do my job and the way that I love other people that I interact with. How would it change you just as a mother or a father or a roommate 
to say, I am a saint. I have been sent to my spouse, to my roommates, to my children, to whomever it is, to represent Jesus and to show them his love. I am not here by accident. I'm not in this home by accident. I'm not at my job by accident. I'm not in the neighborhood I'm in by accident. I'm not in the missional community on common mission of these people by accident. However I may feel, I have been set apart by God. You've got to own that. However you may feel like a screwdriver and you say, I'm a hammer. Or vice versa. But also we need to own where we're at. So not everybody in here knows everybody to the same extent. So let's think about our everyday mission location. So those who are willing to share, what are your everyday mission locations? Where are you at every day? Go for it. Where do you work? Where do you live? Where do you play? Doctor's office. What's the name of your doctor's office, Jason? Skin cancer, cosmetic, dermatology. Who else? Everywhere in Chattanooga, but who do you work for? Geico Insurance. Who else to share? School teacher? Valley View Elementary School? Nope, Gladden Middle School. Got you and Carson mixed up. Who else? This will help us pray for each other. Lee University. All right. Tyler, school bus driver for Cleveland City Schools or Bradley County or something? Okay. Who else? Abby? All the kids in what? skate park. All right, we, I encourage you, you don't have to say it out loud, say it in your head right now. This is where I live, this is where I work, this is where I play. Now let's not just own our identity as saints, we've got to do that first, but let's, let's own the fact that God has placed you there. You might not like that right now, but this is where he has you. He sent you there. He wants you to know about that place. He wants you to think, what interior life, what are the hopes and the fears of the people in in this place? He wants you to think about what their life rhythms are. Where, Where do they play? Where do they go to have fun? Where do they like to eat? What do they like to do? How could I do that with them? He wants you to think about the common worldview that's shared in those different places. What are the truths that these people hold? What are the idols that they worship? So they're probably not bowing down to an idol of Diana or Artemis, but it could be money, could be power, could be comfort, could be control. But if we think about these things, uh, if we're honest, it may get a bit overwhelming. So there's the good news of the fact that I, I matter so much and my identity is so meaningful. But then sometimes when you point that out, you're like, whoa. 
It's important to acknowledge where God has placed me is so meaningful. I'm not just there to, to earn a paycheck and get home and do what I want. But sometimes that can become like, wow, I was already overwhelmed and now I feel more overwhelmed. And so we have to look into verse 2 here as we seek to, to bring everything together. Is that we're in Christ and in our city not only by living into this dual identity, but ultimately and only by looking to Jesus. Because we need to be honest that we forget these things are lost. I know a lot of do. We forget that we've actually been sent by God and set apart by God. And if we're all honest in here, there are many days of our life, past, present, and future, are all about just getting whatever the bare minimum we need to do get done so we can get on with building our own kingdom and enjoying our lives. If you're honest, some of you in this room, if not all of us, starting with this guy, are simply existing where you're at. It's like, I just got to go exist in these spaces. They're incidental to who you are. You, you have locked the door, as it were, to everything around you, saying, I've just got to get done what i got to get done and get back to my life. We believe the lie so often that, you know, God has saved me from hell. Now I'm just going to play life safe. Instead of believing that I have been sanctified, spirit-empowered, gifted, and placed exactly where he wants me. So we need hope. If you're like me, you feel this burden of, I can't do this. And so Paul begins this letter with these words he'll continue to unpack throughout. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news, our hope to live as the sanctified people of God in Christ and in our city is not in our own personality. It's not in our own power. It's not in our own performance. But it's in the grace and peace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Grace to you. These are words we all need to hear. I encourage you to share these words with people who have followed Jesus. Grace to you. God's grace is not simply his unmerited love and power, it's his demerited love and power. Not only do we not deserve it, we've did everything to reject it. And yet he comes to us and gives us his undeserved love, undeserved acceptance. He wants you. He's not sitting up thinking, wow, who could I get to do this? No, he wants you to be with him. And you, grace, again, we're, we're underlining this morning the specificity to you. Not general grace. We've got we've to move past these generalities. Grace to you. Who you are. Where you are. And peace. Peace, not just this inner feeling of quiet. You know, like people talk about having a peace about something. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know if I've ever had a peace about anything. If you mean like I just feel like God said this and I know that I know that this is right. So honestly, I don't know what people mean when they're talking about that. That's not how my warped brain works. But the peace of God is this, this fancy word shalom. It's the fact that God has put you into this position of well-being. This fact that God is making the whole world whole. 
And the wholeness and order and restoration of God has been now given to you through Jesus in the Spirit. From God our Father. That God has not just made you a person in His kingdom. He's made you a child in His family. He calls you child. He knows your name. Whatever your experience with your earthly father, your heavenly father wants to specifically spend time with you and to live with you in your everyday specific life. And the Lord Jesus Christ. He was no general savior. He wasn't a savior from afar, but who came near. That the Ephesians needed to hear these words, and we need to hear these words, that he is Lord. Not Lord as the Caesar whom they knew, who claimed to be a son of God, but Jesus who actually was God, who was the son of God. Lord, but also Jesus, which means our God saves. The one who came to the Jew and the Gentile, and who doesn't merely see you as someone to be a soldier in his army, but who knows, his na- knows your name knows your place, and who doesn't just ask you like Caesar, their Lord, would have done to them to come and die for him, but first who came and died for you. Not just generally for the world, but for you, for your specific sin, for your specific life, for your specific suffering. Who was betrayed and killed like many Caesars were, but who did so sovereignly by his own authority and through his resurrection was shown to be the Christ, the King of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And he will make all things new in all creation, especially his people. This is the one who brings us grace and peace so that we can live our lives, and our places. And that's what we call the gospel. This is the good news that as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, as we saw early in our order, he's wept over you, he's wept over this city, and he's called us to love it. You think of these instant hit movies like the Bad News Bears, right? The worst kids out in the playground, right? Call them. And coach gets them together, makes them good. Or less appropriate, the movie Major League, right? You've got these horrible professional baseball players, but this crazy coach comes and unites them together, and now all of a sudden brings out all of their best gifts and potentials, and they go from loser to champion. What the gospel is telling us, the gospel of a way better story than that that we've been involved in. That you were created from the very beginning for the glory of God. And though we chose to live for our own kingdom and do our own thing, to lock the doors on everyone around us and rule our own spheres, God has came to us. He has called us. He wants us to now live as the set-apart people of God that we are. The only way we can do this, though, is we have to rehearse who we are. We are in Christ Jesus. 
We've got to get this gospel grammar right. Who we are comes before what we do. Who we are comes before what we do. We don't define who we are by what we do. We do what we do because of who we are. Saints in Christ Jesus. But we go do that specifically. Strategically. The everyday people and places we're called. Asking questions like this. What does good news sound like in my home? What does good news look like in my home? What would it look like for me to embody the gospel to the people I live around? What does good news look like and sound like at my workplace? How can I demonstrate and declare that? What does good news look like and sound like in my neighborhood? What does good news look like and sound like in the area of common mission God has called me to in missional communities? And we just keep leaning into that. This is what our world needs. We live in a dislocated world where everybody is everywhere and yet at the same time everybody is nowhere. On social media, we're everywhere, but we're nowhere. So many people pull up to their houses, either into a garage and the door shuts, or they pull up and get in their house as fast as they can. We're everywhere, but nowhere. We could tell you the names of characters on ten Netflix shows, but we can't even tell you the names of the ten closest neighbors that live to us. We could tell you the stories of people we read about on Instagram, but we couldn't tell you about our co-workers' last ten years of their life. We have good news to bring to people, but we must be the church in Christ and in our city. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We pray now as we come to your table that we would rejoice in the visible representation that you came to us in Jesus Christ. You came to us in a way that we could touch and taste. We could feel, that we could see, that we could hear, that we could experience. Not merely in our heads, but our hearts and our hands. May this time around your table remind us of that in every way.